0: We've all done it before, am I right? We ordered some piece of furniture, it had to be put together, it comes with an assembly list in 12 different languages, and none of them make any sense. And see, the thing about furniture that we have to assemble, or really anything that has a purpose to it, how you put it together matters. It does. And God cares about the process more than He cares about how you look at the moment, Like me, I'm sure you tried to assemble something and the plans didn't make any sense. Well, the Bible is filled with some battle plans that don't make sense. They don't look good on paper. David versus Goliath. The Hebrew slaves against the Egyptian army. The battle of Jericho. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at one of these plans from the Bible. It's in the sixth chapter of Judges. Gideon and 300 Israelites take on a horde of oppressive, murdering, thieving Midianites. And the abridged version goes like this. Israel, once again, falls into idolatry and forgets God. And so the Midianites come, and they sweep in, and they steal everything that they have, and they continue to steal and to destroy their homes for seven years. And God calls Gideon to go to war against the Midianites. But after Gideon amasses his fighting force, God only lets him take 300 into the battle. Bad plan. But we all love how it ends up because with God, the bad guys are defeated and peace is restored to the land. Now, I've already given you the end of the story. So, what I want us to focus on this morning is the why. To God, the process of achieving victory is equally important to the victory itself. Let me say that one more time. To God, The process of achieving victory is equally as important as the victory itself. So let's unpack the process. And the first step in that process is admitting where you are in the process. Honesty is the first chapter in the book of wisdom, said Thomas Jefferson. Everyone needs that big red arrow that says, you are here Right? At the mall, at the theme parks, there's usually maps posted and a big red dot on them that says, you are here. And unless you enjoy walking around in circles or backtracking and wasting time, it's a good idea to know where you are in relationship to where it is that you want to be. And God is constantly giving us red dots to tell us where we are. But until we agree with Him and confess where we are, can't do anything, and we're not going anywhere. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. God is looking for agreement here. Let us. Look, if he's just telling you, it's not going to be as meaningful as him showing you, and you have that aha moment, right? And this is exactly where Israel is at. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, in caves, and in strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country, and they camped on the land, and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys." And they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Let's pray. Father, for our families, for our city, for our state and our country, We cry out to you this morning, help us, help us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, you may be seated. Israel is oppressed by Midian for seven years during the time of the judges, and it is a nation in chaos. Okay, this is one of the most rebellious and stubborn and unfortunate periods in all of Israel's history. They are surrounded by non-believers, and rather than living out their faith as a witness, they repeatedly succumb to the temptations. And the last verse of the book really sums it up. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, and each man did what he considered to be right. The book records seven cycles of sin that span about 300 years, and the cycles begin with disobedience resulting in bondage, resulting in misery, and then God would raise up one of the judges and call the people back to him, and that would result in repentance, and that would result in deliverance, and that would result in blessing, but just when life got easier, back into the compromise and disobedience they would go again and again, and again, for 300 years. Now, Moses had given this warning from the Lord to God's people right after they were freed from slavery in Egypt. He said, when you have eaten and you're satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands and his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied and when you build fine houses and settle down and your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. D.L. Moody said it like this, we can stand affliction better than we can prosperity, for in prosperity we forget God. One of the problems that you and I face is that our priorities and our perspectives and even our sense of normal, Has been warped by decades of unprecedented blessing. Compared to anyone in the Bible or anyone throughout the 6,000 years of recorded history, we as Americans have been insulated by wealth and by material blessing, by technological advancements. We live longer, healthier lives. We have more than we know what to do with. And generally speaking, We have not experienced the brutalities of life that our ancestors had to, and while none of those things are sinful, the cumulative effect results in a self-focus, our comforts, our success, instead of looking to God as our provider and the source of our joy. And when we allow our comforts to guide our decision-making and our priorities, rather than God's Word, we enter that same cycle of sin and rebellion. Now, one of the key players in the story here is a people known as the Midianites. They are the descendants of a man named Midian, who was the son of Abraham through his second wife, Keturah, whom he married after Sarah had died. So in essence the Midianites are distant relatives of the Israeli people. Interesting. The brutality comes from ungodly family. The Midianite people engaged in human trafficking and other unsavory criminal activities. And some of you may remember the story of Joseph in the Bible when his brothers sell him into slavery. It's to the Midianites. And when Moses was leading the Hebrew people into the promised land, it was the evil plotting of the Midianites using their own wives and their own sisters and daughters to lure and entrap the men of Israel into idolatry using sex as a weapon. These were some bad people, all right? But let me drop some knowledge on you. The Midianites were not the problem. Israel was the problem. Okay, what? Now, what are you talking about, Pastor Michael? Look, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but hear me out. God uses the Midianites to show Israel that they are the problem. After seven years of oppression, God sends a prophet to explain. And he says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. And I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove out them out from before you. And I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. And God is saying to his people, can you hear me now? After seven years of loss and poverty, are you ready to listen? Most people are quick to identify all the external problems and ascribe blame, right? Look, our problem is obviously the Midianites and the Amalekites, who are eating our food and burning our homes. Pastor, my problem is my boss is a tyrant. Pastor, my problem is my spouse. My problem is my kids. My problem is I can't find a job. America's problem is Obama. America's problem is the NSA, out of control. America's problem is the IRS. Look, we are quick to lay blame, but slow to confess our role in why these things are happening. Your circumstances are not the problem. You are the problem. Good morning. <laughs> Pastor Happy is here once again to talk to you in this very quiet church, God says, hey, remember me? I'm the one that brought you out of X, Y, and Z, and you are not listening to me. And God allowed his people to simmer in that situation for seven years. Sometimes God allows us to soak in our self-inflicted problems so that when he speaks, we're ready to listen because we've been humbled. Remember that big red arrow? You are here. It took Israel seven years of pain and oppression and poverty before they finally were ready to say, yes, we are here. We are in rebellion and we are in compromise and idolatry and we have been the problem. And then God responds and he calls a farmer named Gideon. It says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, I know you probably have never realized how biblical the Star Wars movie is, but look, that's okay. That's why I'm here to explain these things to you In the original Star Wars movie, there's these scary-looking, violent nomads covered in rags. They're called Tusken Raiders. And they ride in from the wilderness, and they raid the outlying villages. And Luke Skywalker is a young farm boy who has a run-in with these sand people, and the course of his life is changed. As he loses everything, his aunt and his uncle are killed, the house is burned, and he strikes out on a path that will lead to him becoming a Jedi Knight and helping save the galaxy from tyranny. And Gideon also is a member of a small village in a society in shambles. He too is a farm boy with a bleak future. I mean, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Guy has no future. Now, his daddy names him MMA champ, right? Gideon means mighty warrior. But high hopes, but you know, it's not really working out for this kid until God intervenes. And it says the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon says. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midianites. Now, at this point in the process, Gideon is not one of the wolverines from the Red Dawn movie, right? He's not out there like picking off Midianite raiders. No, he's in hiding. He's trying to prep enough food for himself and his family to stay alive through another miserable year. And he has no idea who this visitor is, and you can hear it in the bitterness of his reply. This is God's fault. He rescued our people from Egypt, but he's obviously walked off. He has abandoned us in this crisis. God doesn't care. Why has God left us when we need him most? And the Lord turned to him, and Instead of rebuking him for that kind of response, he says, Go in the strength that you have. Save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replies. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least of my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites, leaving none alive. And Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it really is you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Now, in the process of achieving victory, after you've admitted where you are, you need to confirm the will of God right? And to do that, Gideon tests God. And God is okay with being tested, right? He's very patient with us as we wrestle with our doubts. Sometimes we struggle. We struggle sometimes to believe that God will take care of us if we give our money and make His kingdom a financial priority. God, listen, God is confident in His love for you and His ability to provide for what you need, He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, there will not be room enough to store it. God is asking for you to test him. And you need to know the will of God before you charge in. Jesus is not afraid of our questions and he doesn't beat us up when we wrestle with doubt, and what his will is. God didn't rebuke Gideon for not already going out and engaging in conflicts with the Midianites. No, God understood it was a dire situation. God, what he did was he patiently confirmed his will. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. God promises to show us where to go and warns us not to rush ahead like a horse that's got to be reined in, or to be stubborn like a mule that's got to be kicked so that it'll get up and do something. Stay close to God. He will confirm his leading in your life through prayer and through the Bible and through the godly advisors that he has placed in your life. And so, God confirms his will to Gideon when he passes Gideon's test. But then, God turns around and he tests Gideon, right? God is patient and understanding with all of our questions and our tests, but are we patient and understanding with God when he questions and tests us? Hmm. David wrote, test me, Lord, try me, examine my heart and my mind. And as for Gideon, at first, God patiently encourages him and he allows him to question and to doubt, to seek and to test God's call. But once those fears are dealt with, God steps in to test Gideon and to determine if he can be trusted. That same night, the Lord said to him, tear down your father's altar to Baal. Cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then, build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. So, God commands Gideon to boldly destroy the idols that are on prominent display in his town. The ones that are causing his own community to drift away and sin. Now, I will add here, these are the idols that were made by his own dad in his own shop. The Lord uses lesser challenges to prepare us for greater ones. Before giving Gideon the biggest assignment of his life, God gave him a smaller task of tearing down his father's idols and building an altar to the Lord. And it was a dangerous act that would anger the men of the city, but Gideon passes the test, and he obeys the Lord. Faithful obedience is crucial to the process because God is preparing us for bigger opportunities. Now, it's important to note on the process of victory, God's test of Gideon was, where is God in your level of priorities? It's not a mistake that the first of the Ten Commandments is about putting God first. And Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, not what Oprah Winfrey or Dr. Phil had to say, right? You see, because Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Israel's sin that brought them into this crisis was idolatry. And look, you know, we can get a little bit self-righteous when we talk about this because really, when was the last time that you went over to Home Depot and bought some lumber and carved an idol out of it? Really, never, okay? But this is the same struggle that our sin and Christians struggle with because idolatry, simply stated, is anything that we prioritize above God and putting Him first, So in the process, the first battle that Gideon experiences victory in is a spiritual battle. Tearing down the idol of his father was not a physical battle, really, but a spiritual one. Before you and I can see our circumstances change, before we see broken relationships restored, financial breakthroughs, a legal breakthrough, or see our community change for the better, we must win the spiritual battle first. Physical victories will only follow after we have achieved spiritual victories because those are the ones that God is most interested in. And God was asking, will you put me first publicly in tearing down the idols to Baal and Asherah and building an altar to God in their place? God was asking Gideon to take a public stand for God. And hear me out, there is no such thing as a genuine private faith. What Jesus did for you on the cross was very public, and it was utterly humiliating. But he did it for you out of love, and he wants the same kind of zeal and devotion for him from us towards him. Jesus was very clear about it when he said, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And God is asking, will you put me first before your family? Gideon's dad and his family were not just involved in idol worship they made their living off of making and selling idols. And Gideon basically destroys the family business in obeying God. It could be that in taking steps of godly obedience, your family may be your biggest obstacle. Some of you might can empathize here with what Gideon is experiencing, God requires us to be bold for him in the face of pressure that would seek to weaken or compromise our loyalty to him. And Jesus said, anyone who loves their father or their mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or their daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus leaves no wiggle room, no gray area. Put me first before my parents. Yes, before my kids? Yes. Put me first, period. The enemy will take note when you are committed to putting God first. When you are all in with Jesus, the enemy will both fear and respect your commitment Now, we see this when Gideon sneaks up onto the camp of the Midianites and he overhears two of them discussing a bad dream. It says Gideon arrived just as a man was telling his friend about his dream. I had a dream, he said. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. And his friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Listen, the whole reason that the enemy even knew Gideon's name at all was because he was the one that tore down the idols, and it became public knowledge. So now, idols are destroyed. God is back in first place where he belongs, and Gideon amasses his army. And the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear can turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men walk, while 10,000 remained. God takes Gideon's army of 32,000 and whittles it down to 10,000 by asking those who are afraid to go. And God wants us to experience victory. And in this step of the process, he is confronting our fears. Look, fear is a natural human emotion. It's not that God wants us to be emotionless Vulcans. No, he just knows that we can't achieve victory if we're controlled by fear. King David was an experienced combat veteran, and he wrote, when I am afraid... I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, and I am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And we sing the song like this, I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. One time, the disciples of Jesus were caught in a storm, and despite the fact that they were all experienced fishermen, they were overpowered by the forces of nature, and they became afraid for their lives. And that's when they spot Jesus walking on the water towards them. And I love that the Bible includes the fact that at first they thought they were seeing a ghost, and they all start screaming like little girls. (laughs) And Jesus calls them and says, don't be afraid. And Peter yells out, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And Jesus says, come. Come. And God rewards Peter's trust by allowing him to step out of that boat and begin to walk on top of the water towards Jesus. But then it says that Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, and he began to look at the waves and at the storm around him, and fear grips his heart. And within seconds, he begins to sink, and he cries out, Jesus, save me! And that is exactly how it is with us when we focus on our problems rather than than on the God who solves them. Where your focus is will be where your faith is. If you're focused on God, your faith will be in God. And if you're focused on your circumstances, you will be filled with fear. God doesn't want fear to control Gideon's army. So he says, send the fearful home. Boom, 22,000 walk, more than half. Eliminating fear is an important step in the process because of something called emotional contagion. Emotions are contagious, and depending on the strength of the emotion and the personalities involved, some are more contagious than others. Maybe you heard about the experiment that Facebook did with all of its users. Scientists working for Facebook skewed the positive or negative content that appeared uh, of the feeds of more than 700,000 Facebook users over the course of a week to study their reaction. Of course, they didn't know. They were just using Facebook. They didn't know they were a part of a social experiment. Kind of creepy. Anyway, the study found evidence of what is called emotional contagion. Basically, what they do is they, they pushed positive or negative status updates to the top and then watched how people would respond and react. And the findings showed that those subjected to negative posts responded in kind, and that those who were exposed to happier updates responded with more upbeat posts. Emotional contagion. Paul encourages us to watch out for emotional contagion when he wrote, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble. And defile many. I can't tell you how many times I have seen one person's offense infect other believers, divide friendships, damage ministry. You need to get away from negative people and focus on Jesus. You're going to have to leave your fears behind if you want to see your victory. And listen, you have to leave the fear behind before you see your victory. Another kind of weakness that God says that he wants to eliminate in this passage is pride. And he tells Gideon straight up, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. If you say I did it, you end up right back in the same cycle of sin. And God says, Gideon, you and your people, you have a problem with pride, and I'm gonna help you with that so that you don't end up here again. Pride is what got them there in the first place. And isn't it mind-blowing how subtly pride creeps into our hearts? One success, and we think, whew, I've arrived, we spend years maybe getting slapped upside the head until we gain one little nugget of wisdom and then we turn around and use that to criticize and put other people down and judge them when they're just trying to figure the same thing out. Pride is the worst sin and it's the root of all the others. Pride, you see, is putting ourselves in the place where God belongs. And since God is actually perfect, he can't be proud And so in spite of being perfect, God is amazingly humble. Remember when Jesus got down on his knees and he washed the feet of his disciples? God is drawn to our humility because that's what's in his character. And when he sees the sin of pride in us, he will help us deal with it. Even if it means taking away our resources to help us to remember that we don't have to do it on our own, but we do need to depend on God. Now, we are in round two of eliminations, and this one is the elimination of the mentally unprepared. The Lord says to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. If I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water and there the Lord tells him, separate those who lap the water with their tongue as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs, and all the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands, let the others go home. Now, maybe when you first read that, it seemed kind of silly to you, but I want you to think about this. Those that put their heads down to the water to drink made themselves vulnerable. Anyone could have walked up behind them and overtaken them. The ones who brought the water up to their face could still be watchful. And here's the truth. How you train is how you fight. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing a report of a police officer who was tragically killed in a gunfight with gang members. And as they were processing his body, they discovered that his pocket was stuffed with spent brass. And here's what happened. In his group of law enforcement, when they would go to the range where they would train, they were trained that after they expended each magazine, they were to bend down and grab all the expended brass and shove it in their pocket. And so he, that's how he trained. And he did it over and over and over again until the moment when he's actually in a real firefight and he goes right into his training without even realizing what he's doing. In the middle of the gunfight, he bends down to pick up the spent brass and stuff it in his pocket and he loses his life. Because in the moment of pressure, he reverts right back to his training. And you and I are exactly the same way. And this is why in Ephesians, Paul commands us to put our spiritual armor on daily. Why? Because we're in a war. It's about awareness. We were born on a battlefield, and every day is a battle, and you are either fighting right now or you're preparing to fight. Train well, and you will fight well. 300 men, God chooses. They're thinking about the battle that they are about to face. They are mentally in the game right now. They are poised. They are ready for this battle. To achieve the victory in this phase of the process, you must be aware. The apostle Peter says, be alert of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The 300 knew they're about to get into a fight. And even though the enemy camp was at a distance, their eyes were peeled they were not going to take any chances. Look, the enemy is not just going to hand you a victory. Be ready at all times with your sword, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes in our hearts. So now, Gideon has 300 God-approved soldiers. And they go into the battle, not with swords, not with heavy artillery, with clay pots and torches and trumpets. Well, I I think you're probably thinking the same thing that these guys were thinking, right? This is either God or the shortest fight of my life, because this is crazy, and it may be the last thing that I ever do. And, you know, it kind of reminded me of, uh, of the movie The Lord of the Rings, you know, when all the good guys, the heroes, are going up in the battle. It's against overwhelming odds. Certainty of death, small chance of success. What are we waiting for? That's right. What are we waiting for? Hey, when you know that God is with you, you can roll with it. And here they are. They're stationed around the Midianite camp of thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And Gideon gives them these very detailed orders which sum up to something like this. Hey, guys, look what I do and do that. Are you ready? Let's roll. A Navy SEAL once told me, if you have the right mindset, anything can be a weapon. A rolled up magazine, a pen, whatever. It's called situational awareness. Switch into survival mode, and you will see things can be useful in ways that you might not have imagined before. In God's hands, as weak as we are, we can be a weapon if we will place ourselves in his hands. Put what you have in the hands of God and watch him display his glory. The Apostle John describes one of these moments when he records, thousands of people had trekked out to hear Jesus teach. And as the day wore on, Jesus asks Philip about supplying food for everyone, and Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And Andrew comes up, and he informs Jesus that a, a little boy is there, and he's willing to give his five loaves and two fish, and it's completely inadequate. But the food is placed in Jesus' hands. And that small lunch, that inadequate amount of food, was multiplied by God to feed thousands of people in that crowd. Plus, they had leftovers. Don't focus on what you don't have. Our faith isn't in what we hold in our hands, but in the hands that hold everything. And here's what happens. God comes through in a big way, and they win over the Midianites. It says three companies blew the uh, the trumpets and they smashed the jars and grasping the torches in their left hand and holding in their right hand the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men in the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And the army fled to Beth-Shittah towards Zerarah, as far as the border of abel Meholah near Tabat. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh were all called out, and they pursued the Midianites. And Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites. Seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as beth Bara." So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. And Gideon calls everybody to a Midianite beatdown. And let me tell you something, this, this moment, this is the last time in scripture that you ever hear of the Midianites described as a threat to the people of Israel. God wants us to experience a total and complete victory over the problems that we've been wrestling with. The Israelites dealt with this reoccurring issue again and again for seven years. But when they walked obediently through the process, admitting where they were, putting God in first place, eliminating fear, being prepared for the battle, letting God use what they had in their hands, God handed them a total and complete victory. And the generations that followed never had to fight the Midianites again. How about you? How long have you been under the thumb of your problems? Or have you been stuck in a cycle for decades? When we embrace God's process, like Gideon, we can experience miraculous victories through the power of God. No matter the size of the enemy or the obstacles that you face or the lack of the resources that you have in your hands, God is sovereign. He is the great I Am, and there is no power in earth or under the earth or anywhere that can stand against Him. When you follow God's process and His instructions, the victory will come. You know, we always seem to pray, God, get me out of this. Instead, pray, God, what do you want me to get out of this? C.S. Lewis said, there's two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. The Lord always works in a way that exalts and glorifies Him. Don't shortcut the process. If you're willing to surrender to God and His ways, He will powerfully display Himself through you and accomplish more in your life than you thought possible. We all love miracles, right? We just hate being in a place where we need one. Understand that God, He doesn't play it safe, He's more interested in the process than in prospering us. He's more interested in your character than in your comfort. Just like he did with Israel, God will put us in desperate situations to get our attention and get us focused back on him so that we can realize that his way, his will, his process, is always designed to deliver us and set us free our way, our will, our process. No, no. That always leads to bondage. I want everybody to stand with me this morning. Say, thank you, Lord. Let's everybody close your eyes this morning. Just begin to search your heart.